Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune in to my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Caram. You're listening to Rowan Pratt Method, where we talk all things fitness, mindset, well-being, performance, and lifestyle design so that you can live a high-performance life. On today's episode, we have Paul Vanderputt, who is a registered psychologist. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Rowan. Nice to be here, mate. Nice to see you again. Yeah, great to see you again. So, tell us a little bit about who you work with. What types of people? Uh, wow, big question. So, um, I, I work in private practice in Bentley. So, predominantly the people that we're seeing, they're presenting with a range of, of uh, issues. Um, one thing that's really fortunate, thanks to the inclusion of things like the NDIS recently, is it's private practice isn't just for people who can, I guess, afford it. So we see, you know, people experiencing depression, anxiety, stress, all the way through to people experiencing psychotic disorders as well, um, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, and kind of everything in between. People who just attending for career transitions or relationship concerns, people who may be more severely impacted by their mental health so yeah it's a really big range and it's um it's it keeps things quite interesting i suppose i imagine it would so there isn't really like a standard person that would come to your services is there it's pretty much anyone would seek this help essentially yeah yeah so we're um we see everyone from pretty much age 12 upward um male female other whoever um yeah we, we absolutely don't discriminate okay out of curiosity how do you package it for the audience? Because obviously they're different demographics. Mm. They've all got different issues. So mm. if you were working with a 12-year-old kid compared to a middle-aged woman, for example, mm. how do you package it for that individual? Because I imagine they'd have similar problems, but mm. you'd probably take a different approach. Um, so depending – yeah, so it, it depends what a 12-year-old's presenting with, right? So I would – we work with the parents of that 12-year-old predominantly. A 12-year-old may not necessarily know what's going on. They just know that something might not quite be right as opposed to a – adult who is more articulate able to actually explain what's happening um so it, it really does depend on their level of i guess um, psychological literacy as well um how, how do we package it yeah the treatment's nuanced it's idiosyncratic so it's not a cookie cutter approach there's absolutely no one size fits all model to this um and the other you know, the people that we work with as well um i think that's something that that is attractive to them too. So um, treatments for depression, for example, can range from being simply cognitive behavioral therapy all the way through to something like eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a treatment for trauma. Um, And again, everything in between. So the first thing that we do is do a thorough assessment to really understand what the presenting problems are or what the presenting needs are. And based on that, we'll design interventions to then implement them. One of the big things that we do that that, that I do is um, make sure that the consumer or the participant the client whichever um we we're referring to them um is feels as though they're included in their treatment as well so it's always hey there's a couple of different things that we could do here um one of the things might be looking at how we um go about reframing your thoughts because it sounds as though there might be some negative patterns of thought that have really entrenched themselves recently um how how does that sound to you um alternatively we could also potentially look at um processing some of these emotions that might have been um maybe dysfunctionally stored or or experienced due to some really understandable reasons previously as well so you know it's possible we can do both but you know which which sounds like um it might resonate more with you and really giving them the opportunity to choose something you mentioned 
in reference to the internal dialogue, like those thoughts people have. And I think I heard a quote a while ago, which is, wherever you go, there you are. So people can't escape that voice most of the Mm. time. What Mm. advice would you have for someone that would be experiencing uh, negative self-talk? Wow. Um, That's that's hard to say. I suppose what we always do is looking at the why, right? The the what is less important than the why. If that negative self-talk is there, there's typically a reason for that. Right. So what, what I'd be wanting to understand more about is what what that voice actually is saying. What what are the words specifically that, that, that are being um, spoken? If it's just a critical voice, um, where does that come from? Is that internalized pressure? Is that maybe someone else's voice that they've heard throughout their life? A parent, a teacher, um, a sibling, whatever it might be. So we can often find that 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 voice that's there is and can be ghosts of the past that we're responding to at that time. So really important to recognize what it is so that we can choose how we want to respond. Yeah, sometimes that that voice can actually be an adaptive response too. It can actually be warning us about something that we do need to be cautious of. Um, how we discern when it's appropriate and when it's maladaptive, that, that's the tough part as well that people can struggle with as well, right? If um, they've lived their whole life listening to this voice, it's protective at yeah. that sense, yeah? So a lot of the work in therapy as well is val- actually validating that um, without just saying, yeah, no, this, this voice is bad, let's get rid of it. It's okay, cool, let's understand it, right? Why is it there? What's it helping you with? What isn't it helping with? And how can we how can we maybe manage that? I love how you approach that with such curiosity. Like you're exploring mm. it as opposed to labeling it, which mm. a lot of people are worried about when it comes to a psychological treatment. Mm. There's a bit of a stigma attached to it. Yeah. So how do you think people can wrap their head around that in terms of the average person where people are sort of a bit reluctant to go and get outside help from a professional? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, the one one of the things I suppose that, that we, we're proud of is that we, we, we don't treat the diagnosis, right? That the diagnosis is just a, a thing. Um, it's the symptoms that, that we want to work with. And all the diagnosis is, is essentially a cluster of symptoms that people experience, right? We've all experienced lows. We've all experienced negative thoughts. Um, if those two are together with a couple of other things and present for two weeks, then there may be major depressive disorder, you know, but that's not necessarily what we would be looking at at that early stage. Now, obviously, there are important, you know, unfortunately, in, in, in the medical model that we're in, there are, there is absolutely a place where diagnoses are important. Things like funding or medication as well, which is, um, you know, I suppose the best course of treatment in conjunction with psychological therapy, according to, to the research. So it's not something that we push out altogether, but it's not our main focus, right? So, um, yeah, we, we really look at what's actually going on for you rather than what's what the label is. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about cognitive behavioural therapy? Is yeah. That's a pretty common theme. A lot of people talk about it. It is. It's, it's really common. I often have people that um, I might have been seeing for a couple of sessions and then they say, ah, oh, I've heard of cognitive behavioural therapy. Can we do that? And my response to them is, well, we've been doing it. Yeah. Okay. Um, cognitive behavioural therapy is anything Thing. So cognitive refers to thoughts, behaviors refers to our actions. Okay. So I know with the, a lot of the work that you do, um, it would probably be more in that behavioral activation side of things, right? Um, yeah. And when you were talking about the negative thoughts before, that's that's cognitive work. So it's simply combining the two together, looking at how our thoughts and our beliefs impact our behaviors. And the whole premise is that if we can change our thoughts, then we can change our behaviors as well. 
right? So if maybe I'm feeling um, quite low, I haven't been doing too much, been having more of a sedentary lifestyle, I might be feeling really unmotivated and thinking pretty low of myself. Um, the premise would be, well, you know, understanding that again, as, as I mentioned before, and trying to reframe that to, well, no, may, maybe I can feel uh, more positive. Uh, maybe I, maybe I, I'm, I'm not as worthless as I might think I am. Um, and by doing that, it absolutely can elevate one's mood to lead to positive activity and, and behavior. I had a, had a good friend recently uh, send me a meme that um, said that, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is gaslighting yourself, right? <laughs> um, or something along those lines, which I thought was quite funny. And it essentially is, right? We try to reframe our negative thoughts to help us engage in meaningful activity and occupation. The problem is that we can't just lie to ourselves. If we could, uh, well, I, you know, my profession would be in trouble uh, if people could just lie to themselves and tell them something. So it's one thing to have positive self-talk. It's another thing to believe that. And that's often what um, some of the deeper work with CBT is about, is again, looking at the the why and how people can actually fundamentally believe these, these things to be true um, when they seem really foreign to them, right? Someone who might feel fundamentally worthless. It's not going to be enough just to say, no, you are valid. They need to hear that. Absolutely. That's crucial. But having held on to that for 10, 20 years, whatever it might be, sometimes 30, 40, 50, um, there's going to be a little bit of work that needs to be done prior to them being able to believe that. That's where a lot of emotion kind of focus work can come into it and be really helpful as well. Well, that neural pathway would be pretty solid if it had been going on for that long. Yep, absolutely. So I heard where people say, for example, affirmations. If you don't believe them, they just don't work. If you're Mm. just reciting positive affirmations. Yep. Yep. I I, I think that that's a really great um, point, right? It's, It's not what you do, it's why you do it. Isn't it? Yeah. So you can, we can both be waking up doing the same thing, but if you're doing it because you actually give a crap and you want it to make a difference in your life, as opposed to if I'm doing it just because I've been told to do it. Yeah. There's going to be a significant difference of impact that that's going to have on, on us. Well, I guess it comes down to how they're perceiving the situation as well. I know in the fitness industry, mm. a big thing that I have discussions with people about is identifying as a health conscious person instead of someone that has to go to the gym because if they're doing that they're constantly fighting an uphill battle where they have to force Mm. themselves to go to the gym Mm. they don't want to and it's often short-lived same with the diet that they're following it doesn't become a part of their lifestyle Mm. and they it's horrendous they don't enjoy it at all but when they adopt the habits and behaviors of someone that identifies as a health conscious person it Mm. becomes effortless Mm. so what would that be what would be some of the habits and behaviors of a health conscious person i guess things along the lines of being healthy and active every day in some respect, mm. potentially doing something like mindfulness. Mm, mm. I think we've had a few people coming on board that are talking a lot of things about self-care. It's a popular topic at the moment. It is, yeah. It really is. And with post-COVID, even more people mm, are taking mm, it serious. Mm, mm. But there's people who are experiencing journaling, yeah. obviously exercise, mindfulness, breath work. There's so many mm. things you can use. But at the same time, you could fill your whole day mm, just mm. with things to do. Absolutely. Can I tell you a little bit about why self-care is so so effective. Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of looking at the neurology of the brain as well, and how at the end of the day, you know, things are happening on a chemical level, a biological level, right? So serotonin, the the happy chemical, happy neurotransmitter, that's the thing that makes us feel good. It also helps to buffer against stress, right? So if you've just come back from holiday, someone cuts you off on the road, you're probably going to be a little bit less likely to flip them off, right? Yeah. Uh, not that you do that, Rowan. I'm sure. <laughs> um, uh, 
But if you've had a rough day and you, you know, maybe had woken up on the wrong side of the bed, things have been pretty hectic with work, you're not feeling so great, someone cuts you off, you're going to be a little bit more aggravated, right? The difference is the levels of serotonin in your brain. So self-care activities need to be things that actually replenish that, that, that give us a, a sense of um, calm and, and enjoyment so that the brain's producing more of that to help buffer against stressful situations. So what have you found to be effective in increasing serotonin in that's, terms of that's self-care? That's the beauty of it whatever it is that is relevant to you, right? There's no general thing. And this, this is the other thing that we can't just say, everyone um, go and uh, have a bath, right? That might work for me. It's not necessarily going to work work for you, right? And so things like breathing as well, it, it can be really effective for people. And, and it is, right? The, the science around that is, is sound. But not everyone reaps those immediate benefits or, or rewards so much so. So, you know, if what is useful for someone is going for a walk and listening to a podcast awesome do that um if what's helpful is spending your sunday watching the footy you know then then do that it's self-care is a really general and broad kind of thing but again it's not the what it's it's the why yeah interesting so it is different for everyone obviously there's a few commonalities where people will benefit from things like breath work for example scientifically been proven yeah but some people just might not resonate with them Yep, absolutely. Um, and then if they're fine, they might be finding that they're doing it tokenistically, they might be starting to get diminishing returns on that as okay, well. Okay, can you go into that a little bit deeper? Um, if we're trying something that isn't actually working for us, if it's not helping, um, it can actually increase the frustration around yep. the, the activity itself, right? So then the motivation and the, those automatic thoughts become... God, this is stupid. I don't want to be doing this. Why am I doing this? This isn't going to work. And we almost convince ourselves out of it, right? Um, so then, the yeah, inevitably, people will find that the thing doesn't actually work. So, so it's it's an interesting uh, concept because I guess with with the breath work, like like you were saying, um, it is scientifically proven. But for some people, it doesn't work. And I think sometimes it's often overcoming that mental stigma around it. Right, um, and I often have people coming to see me who have been told, "Yeah, I saw a psychologist, and all they told me to do was breathing." It's like, "Great, how'd that go for you?" Yeah, no, it, it didn't. You know, I mean, it, it was okay, but it didn't do much. It's like, yeah, of course, because in isolation, that's not going to do anything, right? And if all you're doing is trying to breathe every day, but not doing any of the other things, like you were speaking about as well, it's not going to be effective, and it could potentially lead to uh, diminishing returns. That's really interesting because. Obviously, I'm a big proponent for exercise, but mm. some people hate it. They don't. That's yeah. the last thing they want to do. They don't want to bother it. They will never enjoy it. And you, no matter how you try and describe mm. encountering endorphins or the benefits of doing anything, yeah. they just don't have that experience. Why do you love exercise? So what? Sorry, not why. We're not meant to ask why, Rowan. In, in psychology, you're just curious of why. Um, what is it about exercise that you um, that you enjoy so much? I guess it would depends. It probably takes me back to. My younger days being athletic, being in a sporting background, connection, yeah. you know, experiencing things through Beautiful. sharing sporting experiences with friends and going on a journey. So setting goals. Mm-hmm. I'm very goal orientated with most things that I work towards. Mm-hmm. So I feel that with exercise, mm-hmm. it doesn't always have to be that way. Mm-hmm. But you can set small goals and you can set larger goals as well and work towards them. How cool is that? So not, not getting all psychoanalytic here, but it's not the thing itself. It's what it represents to you. Right? Yeah. Exercise represents connection, it represents progress, it represents ambition, moving forward. Yeah, and these are all things that are probably values of yours. Yeah. Um, for some other people, they're 
it might represent different things, right? And what I would probably suggest, and when we're working with people who want, everyone wants to exercise more, right? Um, but it's, it's hard to do. Well, again, what, what's the reason that you want to do it? So I often talk about motivation as a moving towards strategy versus moving away. Yeah. Okay? So doing things for a positive reason as opposed to doing things to avoid a negative consequence, right? So a lot of people see exercise as, well, if I don't do it, I'll get fat. Yeah, that's not motivating, right? Yeah. I mean, it's pun- it's a punishment then, essentially, yeah. And that that, as we know from almost a century of research, punishment isn't an effective motivator. So it's more important to focus on why do you want to do this? Well, I want to be fit. That's a lot more adaptive, isn't it? It's a lot more positive. So moving towards versus moving away, that can be a really helpful, just kind of hack almost to to reflect on when trying to engage in positive behaviors. So looking at exercise essentially as a form of self-care. Yep. You were mentioning that certain practices of self-care will produce more serotonin for different people. Mm. Because of the relationship I have with exercise and my past experience, is that why I feel great after I exercise? It sounds like it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a good hypothesis. Well, generally, I do. It. I know I feel better whenever I do it. And if I'm feeling down or anything like that, I know a good workout will actually make me more upbeat and make mm. me perform better in other areas, just mm. based on past experience. Mm. But when you are in a rut and we all go through them, sometimes it's hard to do that. And that's when probably self-care would matter the most. Yeah. But people are a bit reluctant to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it can be a zero to 100 kind of thing as well, right? Working up to exercise as as the thing oftentimes as well though sometimes it is just doing the thing it sets the precedent right it's oh oh shit that's an option i I can do that right for some people they've wanted to go to the gym for the last year um it becomes this great big thing this this huge um insurmountable kind of mountain um just going and doing it kind of starts to change the the chemistry in the brain as well and say you I can do it. It's it's actually not as difficult as it might have been built up to be either. So I think, you know, in terms of that behavioral activation, that's sometimes the most effective thing. It's just doing the thing, not thinking, not overthinking it too much. Just just do it, set the goals and try to try to accomplish that um, and looking at what potential barriers might be there in the way that could be occluding that. So it sounds like it's a bit of a two-way street. So your thoughts will impact your behavior and uh, consequently your actions. Mm -hmm. But you could go reverse and you could change your actions, which will influence your thoughts. Um, Yeah, essentially. That's right. So when when they look at which therapies are most effective, the most effective out of them, and this was a little while ago, actually, so I can't speak to the to more, maybe more recent uh, research, but um, behavioral activation is the most effective treatment. That is just do do the thing, right? Yeah. Um, and what essentially that the reason is, is because behaviors are these concrete manifestations of our values, right? So for you, connection, ambition, what, whatever it might be, if you're doing something that reflects that, you're naturally going to feel better, mm. yeah? Um, and if we're, we're engaging in behaviors that are reflective and, congruent with our values then you know we'll feel better anyway so th- this is a kind of premise in what we call acceptance and commitment therapy or act um that symptom reduction isn't necessarily the goal the goal is to do what's important to you despite how you might we might be feeling what we find is that as a bonus the symptoms reduce naturally as well i often have this conversation with people you touched on values mm. Most people don't know what their values are. And mm. if they do, they're probably not living by them. Why is that? 
That's a really good question. Um, which one? Why people don't know what they're... Both. So are, yeah. I guess people... If I ask them what their values are, they'll probably say, uh, con- well, probably not in these words, but they'll say helping people, things mm. like that, buzzwords that mm. they feel like they should have, but I don't really think they are their real values, not the values they're living by anyway. Yep, yep, absolutely. Love some good buzzwords for values. Um, <laughs> there is, so uh, Russ Harris, who is the uh, the acceptance and commitment therapy kind of guru here, um, he has a lot of great resources around values. One, one of the um, tools that I use as well is, is, a, is a look at your values that has a sheet of 50 of these kind of things, right? Acceptance, adventure, assertiveness, authenticity, beauty, caring, challenge, compassion, connection, contribution. They are kind of buzzwords, aren't they? Yeah, yeah you whack them on the resume at the end part to be like, hey, look how good I am. Um, It's hard sometimes to find things that do genuinely resonate with people. And going through all of of these, um, we might find there might be a couple that actually are um, important to us. How, how, you know, what, what I typically find for a lot of people that I see that I work with is family is one of the, the most important ones. Um, and that can often be something that people can easily engage with themselves, right? It, um, is to spend more time, have dinner, um, go out, spend time with the children, um, what, whatever that, that might be in order to really tap into that value and, and have that met. Um, but sometimes just naming that as important, as commonsensical as it is, right? I mean, obviously family is important. Um, but when we actually na- name it like that, we can kind of realize maybe some things that we might have been prioritizing over that as mm. well. Yeah. So sometimes just putting it in those terms can help to reflect by contrast on what is more important to us and maybe what we've been prioritizing. That's a good I'm not way sure if I answered it. your question, but that's, that's probably my No, I think attempt. it was a great way to, um, you delved into it. So a lot of people aren't really living by their values, and I guess that would lead to unhappiness. So how do you, would you suggest people try and meet those values on a daily basis? I, I usually do. If I'm working with people, if I'm doing um, some acceptance and commitment therapy, I'll usually say, cool, what are these three values that most um, resonate with you? What are some ways each day that you can tap into some of those, right? If not all three of them, then two. If not two, then one. How can you do something each day that makes you feel as though you're doing something that's congruent with what's important to you? Wow. That's great advice. Something I think everyone should be abiding by. <laughs> so, in turn, you've mentioned um, acceptance and commitment therapy. What else works? Clearly, that's a good one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What else works for people? Because there's oh. so many different modalities and methods and techniques out there. And right. I guess some are more beneficial. Mm. And I guess you use different tools at different times. But yeah, like a, a builder, they can do a lot of things with duct tape, hammer, and nails. Sure. What, what's good? Um, yeah. What do they say? There's there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Yeah. Um, and that's absolutely true with psychology. Um, what we know is that there's three factors that are more effective at explaining any variance in treatment success than anything else. Okay. Those three factors are the therapeutic relationship, which is the, um, you know, experience between, um, the therapist and the client, the client's expectations of treatment, and then the specific treatment that's actually used. So, that would be, you know, your CBT, your ACT, schema therapy, whatever it might be. So those three factors combined is actually what is the most effective um, means of, of treatment. 
so what we find, so I, I did my training in counseling psychology. We are kind of like the hippies of the psychology world, right? But um, seeing these kind of things is quite vindicating for us because it means that that relationship is actually one of the most important things. Um, and that's what we spend time building and developing so that there is rapport and there's trust as well between the therapist and the client. Again, when we come back to those really entrenched beliefs that people might have about feeling worthless, if they trust that what the therapist is saying is true, then when they hear positive affirmations or validation, they can actually believe it, right? As opposed to maybe hearing things tokenistically or feeling like we need to validate every session and at every turn when it's, it's almost ingenuous, right? So in terms of what works, the therapeutic alliance is the most important thing. And it's one of the most important things that we, we do in our practice um, as well. The specific treatments um there there's almost an entire discipline in psychology that's dedicated to looking at what works and what what doesn't um i you know cbt is great um but the reality is there's no therapy that isn't either cognitive or behavioral right so essentially everything is cbt um there's just it's just different ways that we describe these things i'll often have people i'll i might say a um reflect something to them and they'll reflect something back in a spiritual context. And I'll often say, look, that's, that's great. If that's what helps you to conceptualize this or understand it, it doesn't matter if I believe it or if I share this or, or, or if, um, you know, we're, we're disagreeing on, on the content of it. It's what helps you to conceptualize some incredibly complex phenomena. And that's essentially what talk therapy is about. Um, and once we can do that, then we can go through the experience of things as well. Um, which is a whole whole different kettle of fish. So therapy isn't necessarily just the talking about things as well. What we're essentially trying to do is create an environment where people can feel comfortable and safe to experience or re-experience difficult emotions in order to be able to transform them into positive ones. That's an essential part of healing yes. in, for anyone, really, that's whatever they've gone through at any stage of their life. Mm. I know previously with working with traumatised youth, co-regulation was a big factor and having that rapport and that strong relationship, being a safe individual in their mm. life is mm. imperative for their healing, whether it be a foster care or whoever they're living with. They need that one person so that they can sort of view themselves positively and be safe enough to heal. And you're essentially yes. providing that to it's, your clients. It's, um, I use, we use the analogy, if you've broken your leg while playing footy, it can't heal while you're still on the ground, right? You need to come off the ground in, in order to do that. So, yes, having that safe environment is, is crucial. That's what, we tr- that's what we try to create um, with, with our clients and, and try to provide, absolutely, um, so that they can then have that corrective emotional experience. Now, what we... You know, often and obviously try to to do is help people to establish that outside of the therapy environment. But for some people, unfortunately, that's not possible, which is is really sad. But it's it's a sad reality. So oftentimes, the therapist does need to kind of play that role until the person can play that for themselves and become. And that's what we kind of refer to, you know, in schema therapy as, as reparenting. 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 Yes, which is essentially meeting the needs of the when we were children, there may have been some unmet needs that might have led to the development of um, maladaptive thought patterns or, or behaviours. So we look at what were those underlying needs and what, what was it that you actually needed to hear? You needed protection, safety, nurturance, empathy. 
what was it and how can you provide that to yourself so how can people become empowered to do that for themselves because obviously Mm. they can't be reliant on an outside source their sessions would be frequent or infrequent at best with a qualified psychologist Mm. And people are busy. That's the common excuse Mm -hmm. as to why people put their mental health on the back burner. Mm -hmm. They just sweep it under the rug and they don't even consider it because they've got families, businesses, things like that. Mm -hmm. How can they become that person they can rely on? Well, telehealth is available now, Rowan. So uh, (laughs) that's that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, which is fantastic. Looks like it's here to stay. But it, it is a hard one. To, and I'm not just I'm trying to demonstrate the utility of my profession here. It, it is a hard one to do independently and without um, a dietic process. So what I mean by that is someone else to support us through that. Oftentimes when there are these deep wounds, it is likely that it's been caused through our interactions with others, right? So we often need those corrective experiences with others to heal that. So if there are, so how can people do this independently? If there's someone that they genuinely trust in their life and they want to... Um, they feel like they can, then it's about opening up and talking about these things. The The fact is that the brain literally changes based on the way that we think. How cool is that, right? Mm, but, neuroplasticity is yeah, great, isn't it? that's it. Uh, the problem is that the brain changes based on the way we think, right? So if we're thinking <laughs> good things, it's going to be reinforced. If we're thinking negative things, it's going to be reinforced. So if we're having those corrective experiences with people, then that's what is going to um, yeah, help to undo potentially pass traumas as well. So a hot topic at the moment is vulnerability, particularly mm. with men. Mm. I think we had a discussion about this last time we caught up mm. and one of my recent guests was had brought it up, says that he's always first to share and he encourages other people to do it. Why do men in particular, and I'm not just saying this is exclusively a men's problem, but why do they struggle so much? Mm. Um, one thing I'm really passionate about at the moment is actually changing the language around that if we keep telling men they struggle with this what are they going to believe yeah right? and the reality is that majority of the people that come through the doors at our clinic are actually men as well um because we have male therapists there as well and then they're hard to find um but men men do seek help yeah and i think it's something really important that we need to start changing that narrative around as well um, but in looking at why, it, you know, I suppose it may have historically been difficult to, to um, for, for men to seek help or experience vulnerability, there's a number of reasons, right? Stoicism, for one, feeling as though you just need to, to man up and get through it. That's mm. such a common... That's the line, isn't it? Man up. Man up. That's it. Exactly right. Um, and it's it's that toxic masculinity, right? The, the problem being that um, we speak a lot about toxic masculinity, but how much do we talk about positive masculinity? Mm. Yes, there's yeah. some great traits. And I think in terms of role models, it's a bit skewed at the moment in modern society about what young men should be looking up to and what mm. type of man they should be looking up to. Such a great point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are your, what are your thoughts on what a, a role model? Um, I think it's probably changed a lot throughout my time. I think... I had a great father, mm. but I had other role models that I met throughout my life that probably weren't the best figures. Mm. And it did have an impact. And again, I struggled with showing emotion, but when I had my daughter, I mm. actually came to a point where I decided, I'm like, you know what? She needs to have an emotionally available father mm. Mm. and I need to cultivate that. Yeah. And it brought a side out into me that probably never would have happened. And I was fortunate enough to have my daughter full time since she was one. Mm. So I became that primary carer and mm. I had that role. And I embodied it and I embraced it. So I guess that was a pivotal moment for me 
to make that, but I didn't base it on anyone else. I just recognised a need that my daughter required that for development. Wow. And I made that decision to make that transition. That's tremendous that you were able to not just identify that, but actually en- enact that change. Um, so do, do you find men, men often um, will be better able at expressing certain emotions than others, right? Um, anger. For example, yeah. I think we're trained to express anger from a young age because you boys, mean? I think boys are taught that the only way that they can express their emotions mm. is to get angry. Mm. And mm. that's generally what they do from a young age because boys don't cry. Boys don't cry. That's right. Um, but again, we're changing the narrative. Boys, boys cry. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. but <laughs> for our generation, as we grew yes. up and yep, yep, yep. even our parents' generation, everything, mm-hmm. that's the basis so men squash their emotions and it's great that they're going out and they're seeking therapists like yourself but a lot of the time they're not sharing with their mates they're not sharing with their partners they are restrictive in so many other ways um there is it's an interesting phenomena i think where a lot of younger men and boys these days that narrative has started to shift a little bit they are more emotionally available they're they're having conversations with their friends um but the older generation that you know that might still be potentially a bit entrenched in some of the older ways of of not um not talking about this stuff or or manning up or drinking a cup of concrete whatever the 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 unhelpful thing might have been um is still stuck there there's kind of then leaves this middle generation that you know kind of us that are like well what what do we do? Yeah. Right. Is, is this okay or is it not okay? Right? <laughs> We're seeing some people do it, but other people are still being, um, you know, reprimanded almost for it. So it's, it's, it's a confusing time right now. I think for, for men to know the right way or, or how to, how to behave as a man. Yeah. Um, there's a number of other issues, I suppose, surrounding that as well that that we could talk about that might be best left left unsaid at the moment as well. But um, yeah, it's, there's there's a lot of a lot of things around masculinity right now that are very hot topic that I think we really just need the dust to settle a little bit until we can see where where things are um, culturally as well. It's a quite a, a different different kettle of fish. Well, it's great that you can see that things are changing, and yes. The topic is coming up a lot more. For a long time, I know mental health was a hot topic. People were talking that there was a problem. Suicide was so high. People were recognising it, but nothing was really being done about it. It was all sort of kept quiet. Mm -hmm. Seven out of nine suicides in Australia are men Mm -hmm. as well. So there there is a gendered nature of uh, of mental health too. So, you know, it is something that kind of needs to be and has, I think, been a lot more of a focus on it. I mean, we're having this chat now in uh, November, Aren't we? Mm, we Neither are. of us are, are sporting that, but I am donating <laughs> to every uh, one of my, my clients who, who's doing it, donating because I felt so guilty about not doing anything this year. Um, but it's such a great charity to raise that awareness. And I think that those kind of things have really helped to um, help us as a society to recognize when people might be struggling and, and how, to, how to intervene as well, what to do. But we have things like Are You OK Day. But the Mm. problem is people love to support it, but how much do they really do about it? Because Mm. as you said, maybe younger generations now are having these conversations, but probably our middle ground right now, a lot of people aren't. A Mm. lot of men that I speak to, uh, for example, a lot of my clients that come to me and they want to get fitter 
or they want to they want help with their diet. And we start looking at their stress management mm. and how they're actually coping with stress. And we find out they've got so many issues, whether it be anxiety, depression, struggling with relationships, mm. just self-worth principles. There's all these mm. factors in here. The cortisol levels are through the roof. Mm. So putting a really heavy intensive exercise training program is not going to help on top of that. Yeah. So it's wow. like addressing the other issues, the other stresses, because we don't want to add more stress. Mm. But they don't talk to anyone about it. I'm like, how are you managing it? They're like, I'm not. It's having a few scotches at night. Yeah. It's not talking to anyone. Yeah. They're just going to work because they've got bills to pay, yeah. but they're not okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's such a common phenomena that as well, this sense of, um, and we see it so often, men will present, okay, cool, what's going on? Oh, just not feeling right. Something, something's up. Right, it's it's this almost um, it's what we, we the clinical term for it is alexithymia. It's the inability to notice or name emotions because we like to label everything in psychology, don't we? Um, but we often almost see that with with these people, they come and they're like, oh, something something's not right. I want to change it. Right, there's real targeted focus on something's not good. Let's fix it. Right, <laughs> yeah. and it can honestly be quite challenging as as therapists as well because we're not necessarily trained to just. Well, some some people might be in that single session approach, but usually this thing takes time. Again, you know, as we were talking about before, the rapport, the development of that, and everything is what really has the biggest impact in therapy. So, for people who just want to come in and get done, that's really not necessarily how it works and i think a lot of men have that perspective they'll come in maybe be approached from that different angle um and then feel as though well this this wasn't working this this didn't do what i I was told it was going to do it's it's actually is a challenge and one of the reasons why usually we do see a bit of a more drop-off or attrition rate from therapy in men than in women um so what we need to do when working with men is making sure that we're actually orientating them to therapy and to treatment what it actually is right so oftentimes what i'll say in the first session is today we're not actually going to do any therapy it's really a chance for us to get to know each other and you to make sure you feel comfortable in this process so i'm pretty much just going to ask you a bunch of questions we're going to have a bit of a chat about what's going on and i'll tell you a little bit about then what therapy is going to look like moving forward how it actually works so we both know what you're coming back here for usually that's enough to help them to you know feel so they're connected they know what's going on they're, they're familiar with the process to a degree and then once they come back more starts to come out that's when that vulnerability happens yeah and commenting on those kind of things reflecting that emotion to them it starts to crack the shell a little bit so yeah the the inhibition and of emotion has been i think just something that's been almost in, embedded in us right as as men that we're, we're not necessarily allowed to experience that unless uh unless you're at the footy yeah when you can scream and you can yell and you can cry you can cry watching the footy how good is that don't do that elsewhere though right um so this is part of what the yeah i think the socio you know, challenges have been so you're ticking two of the criteria that you mentioned. So you're building rapport and then you're also going over the expectations that the mm-hmm. client has mm-hmm. before yep. you start doing the actual work. Almost like almost like this is a science, right? It's almost like someone's thought about this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it obviously must work because a lot of people are benefiting from it. But yeah, so what advice would you have to someone that's sitting on the fence mm. that feels like they're not okay for whatever reason? and something might be missing, they might require a little bit of help, just dive in, you reckon, to seek someone out? Is there someone you need to find specifically to your issue or would anyone be able to help? The first protocol is usually chat with your GP, 
Right. Um, GPs are kind of the people who are in charge of um, the mental health care plans for um, psychologists. This is part of the challenge. I think a lot of people might might know that. They might know that they can go to their GP. The question's often then, well, what then? Yeah. And things like, are you okay day, um, which are fantastic. But what happens when someone says no? Yeah. Right. And I think that's a really big concern for a lot of people who may not be trained like you or I and how to deal with that response. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so going to a GP and acknowledging that massive, massive start. Um, and then from there, there's a number of websites like Psychology Today. Um, the Australian Psychological Society has a find a psychologist um, web page where people can search for people that meet their kind of their criteria, right? They can choose the gender. They can choose what they might specialize in as well. Um, and they can actually choose someone they believe they might get along with and be able to build that rapport with. From there, it's a matter of reaching out and contacting them if they were wanting to get started and stuck into that. Um, in the meantime, informal supports, informal supports being, you know, family, friends, those kind of things. If people have those that they feel like they can talk to absolutely again we need to start changing that narrative right and what a powerful thing to to do especially with someone that might be seen typically as someone who might not talk to actually start doing that and opening up how many times would that then help other people to feel like they can do that that they're setting the precedent for it great advice so question that i have for you Mm. in terms of mental health is it that awareness about mental health issues have increased or is the problem getting worse? Because it seems like everyone's struggling at least with a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression. I know post-COVID it has got worse significantly or at least reported cases anyway. Mm-hmm. But in society, has it been getting worse over the years? Yeah, or are we just more aware? There's a question my father-in-law asked me repetitively probably every three months, I reckon. Um, and I, I don't... I don't know. I, I, I think that when looking, there, there actually might be some data out there. So I don't want to, I should preface this with saying whatever follows is my opinion, not necessarily the the, the facts that are out there. Um, but, you know, from our experience, there has absolutely been an influx of people reaching out and an influx of people who haven't seen psychologists before reaching out. What that would probably suggest is that, yeah, the awareness of it has increased to the point where these people are feeling more comfortable in doing so. Um, was it the fact that previously people were actually just suffering in silence, mm. right? So we do know that from actually, um, brain's ticking over now, I think from the stats, there are more people reaching out for support than there have been previously. Um, so, yeah, there, there absolutely is an, an uptake of that. Um, where, yeah, in the past, would these people have just done nothing about it? Yeah, I'm sure that there would have been some people much more intelligent than me who have figured out the answer to that question. Well, I guess people are suffering in silence. That is a fact. Mm -hmm. Even just close friends of mine, it's often not spoken about when they are going through an issue. It's only when things get really bad Mm -hmm. and that it comes out. Mm -hmm. Well, worst case scenario, we've lost friends. I'm sure you have as well. A lot Mm -hmm. of people have lost people in their lives to the black dog. It it happens Mm -hmm. and you have absolutely no idea. No, exactly. Yep. Um, you're, you're spot on. And it's something that, you know, as much as I like to, to preach and all these things, it's something that absolutely I do myself, that my wife often has to remind me to be more open about things and, and, and discuss things. So I think that it's just a reflection that it doesn't matter who you are. This thing is is universal, right? It can affect us all. And we, we need to be aware of what's what these processes are. Um, even then when we are, it's still difficult. And having people in our lives that can support us is probably the main 
thing, I think. And if people sometimes may not have that, then there are services out there that can support them as well. Well, it's great because a lot of people, I guess it's common knowledge now that there are these services out and people are actively seeking out things like Beyond Blue mm, and mm. other services, yep. Lifeline, etc. So it's good that we have so many services available, but what else can be done? How else can we improve this situation? That's a fantastic question. I'm uh, always a big fan of um, things in the health promotion space. So... I think, you know, awareness has absolutely been raised, but then looking at, well, what what's kind of the, the next step from there, right? Um, I think targeting specific demographics of people, as we were saying before, you know, young men in construction um, have one of the highest rates of suicide in the out of, out of all of them. So what's being done to specifically focus on, on that group to help them to ensure that they're propped up and having step care models where people can go and you know, step step up, maybe have more intensive support when they need it and stepping that down, you know, a phone call a couple of times. Um, the other thing that's really helpful is group programs. And at the moment, there aren't very many um, accessible programs. There's the, um, you know, things like the AA, NA groups, which are fantastic. And anyone who has challenges in those areas should absolutely be, you know, highly recommend looking into those. But the difficulty is that for people who might just need um, some support every now and then or a chat or um, feeling connected to other people, there's a real lack of those kind of um, services available, things that might just be able to provide some light CBT for people, right? Or some um, mindfulness or, or guided meditation for people who might be struggling with anxiety. Oftentimes the feeling connected to other people is so powerful, right? If we're dealing with these things in silo and in isolation, as opposed to dealing with them together, that can be cathartic enough. So I'd say in the health promotion side, probably targeting specific groups more so, and also having um, like group interventions to support people. I completely agree. So one of our other guests that we had, Dan Hunter, we were talking about connection through suffering. Mm. So connection is such a big issue. And I think we had a chat when we caught up recently about potentially setting something up where people can have that connection mm. and seek some help out and have a bit of a community culture with, yeah. I guess, positive vibes and positive adaptive coping strategies to life. Yeah. Yeah. So we definitely want to explore those things in the future. Why isn't it being done? Because clearly there is connection. If you look at the culture of football clubs, for example, yeah. that's what attracts so many people to them because they've got that camaraderie and things. But it often results in excessive drinking, all sorts of dramas. It's yeah. not really the best. I'm not downplaying it, but yeah. there's probably better things that could be incorporated into this sort of community groups. Absolutely. Um, or, yeah, it, it's footy clubs, cricket clubs, grassroots. It's one of the most important things in terms of people feeling that sense of connection, right? Um, and, you know, I think I remember a stat a little while ago that every $1 that's invested into grassroots clubs is the equivalent of $4 back on the economy because of what it provides to people and that sense of well-being and connection. Um, why isn't it being done elsewhere? I think funding is the biggest challenge, right? Even when you and I spoke about it a little while ago, it's yep. been, what, three months since, since and we haven't I, I know I haven't done much, much on that. You've been very busy. Oh, exactly. We will pull the trigger. But if there was, you know, um, funding to say, hey, Paul, you can um, maybe drop one of your days to focus on this, then there would be a larger uptake in doing that as well, right? Um, things like the NDIS, which is fantastic. Um, the price points in some of those things aren't necessarily 
high enough to to justify you know larger services being able to run those and offer those as well so i think it really just comes down to it being um affordable and cost effective at this stage and hopefully through you know systemic movement and action that will that will change as a lot of these things typically typically have so I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful, man. Well, I'm hoping that we can put something together. We'll definitely have more discussions about this yes, in the future. Absolutely, we will. It'll be fantastic. I think just, you know, the combination of the physical activity, which is uh, equally as efficacious at treating mild to moderate depression as our antidepressants, uh, with the cognitive side of things that, you know, we can do in psychology, that would be a fantastic mix and combination. I think it would. Now, that brings me to my next point, which is how much of a play does prevention have? Can you prevent ending up in a situation where you are suffering from mental health issues? Are there certain mm. strategies that can be implemented? Obviously, having a support network will be one of those elements, mm. but mm. not everyone has that, or they mm. maybe they don't feel supported by those around them. How can they prevent themselves from having a downward decline? Mm. Early warning signs, one of the biggest things that we look at, right? What are the early warning signs that you might be starting to slip? For some people, it could be just uh, you know not, they're not so much enjoying something uh they used to anymore um you know others might be they're sleeping more change in appetite they might you might notice that maybe you've started drinking a little bit more or you're having a little bit more after work whatever it might be again unfortunately these symptoms are quite idiosyncratic meaning that they're going to depend on person to person um just because you know you might have started having an extra beer after work doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're slipping but for some people that could actually be a sign right um so being able to notice and pay attention to those absolutely can then help people to figure out what might be going on one of the big things that i like to do and encourage a lot of people to do though is just a check-in either once a week or once every couple of weeks whenever you can afford to do it i think once a week's okay how am i going yeah just asking yourself that so mental health is you know it's it's like it's like a wound we need to acknowledge its existence in order to be able to heal it right if we don't acknowledge it it's going to get infected can heal over calloused and be a lot harder to to remedy when the time comes so doing the check-in is kind of like doing a, a, a once over of yourself and saying hey what's going on how am i feeling what's changed what's different and i think that you know in terms of being able to identify that early decline can be a really helpful step Okay. And what advice would you have to someone who has noticed that they are slipping? For example, they've picked up on a couple of warning signs. Maybe their partner or a friend has pointed out that Mm. they're not quite themselves. Mm. What would you suggest? Maybe get back in touch with things that made them feel good in the past or seek therapeutic help or what would you I I probably would just as a best point of call, um, it would be seek, seek help. Reach, reach out for someone um, just because we don't know what issues people might be dealing with. It might be that it could be, um, yep, you started playing guitar again and realized the passion that you had and that, that's all good. Alternatively, it could be something a bit deeper. Yeah, so I suppose I wouldn't want to provide a generic advice around that and the generic advice would be uh, reach out for some support to make sure that you're ticking all boxes. Um, the other things that, you know, I suppose if someone has then reached out, let's say they've reached out to me with that concern or complaint, what would I say or what would I do is I'd you know, be doing the history, exploring what's going on again. Why why, why has this happened? You know, what is it about what, what's happened now that's, that's led to the person feeling this way? Yeah, um, sometimes it can be that there has been an immediate trigger that needs to be addressed or dealt with. Sometimes it can be that there are these past issues that have been simmering away um, and have, have bubbled up again. So how do people deal with that? It's um, Yeah, there can be a number of different strategies, but 
fortunate unfortunately um from my perspective there's no one size fits all no, for it never is for yeah. anything really no. the personalized approach is always the best approach yep yep so going back to what you mentioned about are you okay day so hypothetically someone says are you okay mm. on that given day and someone says no i'm not how would the general person that is not a psychologist how should they respond to something like that just listen just listen judgment free i presume yep, yep absolutely yeah um judgment free validating um what's going on right like i said before we're not meant to ask why in psychology why can be accusatory finding ways to ask questions about people through you know what what's been going on for you oh how, how are you feeling yeah just being curious um and people don't expect no one who's actually um in, in that informal environment you know i suppose again opinion um rather than fact but i don't think that people expect other people to know the exact right combination of words to use yeah. right when someone reaches out then that's not why they're doing it they're not reaching out and saying no i'm not okay and expecting that you're going to be able to say well here's what you need to do yeah right they're just doing that because maybe well, they actually trust you what a privilege for that to be right let's just sit in that space for a little while let them feel heard and validated and you know again the the kind of generic advice for everyone is touch base with your gp or reach out for some help um psychology today australian psychological society two really good places to start yeah okay i guess most people just want to feel heard they're not looking for advice particularly from someone who is untrained spot on spot yeah. on and that can be can be quite invalidating as well right imagine i said to you a hey, some things aren't going so well you said what's going on i said oh no i've just been feeling really rough recently and you said well have you tried this 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 and this like yeah yeah man i, I have but um you know it's it's not well what about this this and this it's it's not gonna make me feel like you're yeah, I'm valid, right? In in expressing and experiencing that, so it's being dismissed. If, yeah, it can absolutely feel that way. So there's a time and a place to suggest those kind of things. But if you've reached out for support, and um, or so, if someone's reached out for support to you, it's going to feel a lot more validating and warm, reassuring to just be there. And it's easier for both of you as well. Okay, so we have to wrap it up, and I know we could actually talk for the remainder of the night, and Probably. I'm thoroughly enjoying the conversation sure. as I yeah. anticipated. <laughs> and we will definitely have you back. So where can people find you if they wanted to reach out, potentially see you specifically? Yeah, sure. So Adaptive Counselling and Psychology. Uh, we are in Bentley on Centre Road. Um, Google Adaptive Counselling and Psychology or visit our website, uh, adaptivecounselling.com.au. Great, great advice. And thank you very much for coming on the show. And I look forward to having you back on the show again. Absolute pleasure to be here, Ron. Thank you, mate. Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam. Tune in. Oi, 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 oi. IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker.